0: Appreciate that, Brother Phil. As you guys are sitting and uh, we have praising one, uh, I think we have nursery available for the littlest ones. Um, I think we do, but uh, feel free to take them out if you want to. Uh, For the rest of us that are sticking around, I encourage you to open up to the book of Nehemiah. Um, I know some of you are thinking, Nehemiah again? Yes, Nehemiah again. Um, But for those of you that are worried, we're going to spend the next 16 weeks in Nehemiah because there's... A whole bunch of chapters in there. Uh, Fear not. We have one more message in Nehemiah next week, and then we will be moving on after that. So um, the end is in sight, if you will. Just to recap where you guys are turning, we've talked about, uh, um, in the last couple messages, we've talked about a couple things that were important. Um, The first, we talked about burden and the counterfeit um, to burden, which is baggage, we talked about the fact that oftentimes we bring baggage into a relationship and we need to determine whether that's stuff we're carrying with us or whether it's things that um, God is placing in our heart. And oftentimes we deal with fear and feelings instead of faith and facts. We talked about last week and the passion and its counterfeit ambition and the difference between the two. And I think it's important to recognize the true passion that comes within us is coming from God. It's a it's a it's a fervent boiling, if you will, of the Holy Spirit moving through us as He moves forward. We talked about that the fuel for that fire is typically prayer. It's how the prayer is where um, we find our power source as we move forward. This morning, I want to deal with. Uh, Dreams and visions. And the title of the sermon is uh, Dare to Dream Again. And we talk about um, the difference between dreams and visions. And I know in some areas, scripture talks about dreaming dreams and, and having visions. Um, and oftentimes they are very synonymous. But I think this morning I, it's important that we differentiate not so much the biblical definition of dreams and visions, but the practical definition. Um, my wife will tell you I'm the first one to be labeled a dreamer. Um, I oftentimes uh, will will have these huge, grand, and glorious ideas and thoughts. And like the other night, I had a dream about something that I think is absolutely amazing. The idea of, and follow me with this, I know those of you that enjoy food um, will probably like this. I had the dream of something called muffin toast. Think about this, the most savory, Beautiful blueberry muffin that was large enough to fit comfortably in your toaster. Imagine toasting that gently and then pulling it out and just spreading a nice helping of butter on top of it. Muffin toast. I came to me in a dream. And in that dream, little Caleb was fighting me over the muffin toast. So I don't know what that means. I don't know if Caleb and I are going to be struggling with muffins in the future. But it was a silly dream. But I had it. It impacted me. And for the last week, I've been thinking of what toasted blueberry muffins taste like. Because it's a dream, right? And we have crazy dreams. Sometimes they're outlandish and weird, sometimes they're more normal and practical. But when we're differentiating between that kind of a dream and a vision that God has given us as a people to move forward, there's a big difference. And oftentimes, those dreams can get in the way because they're aspirational. And the dream in itself is not a bad thing. It's good to have dreams and thoughts as we want to move into a better place. But we need to, remember, operate not in fear and feelings, but in faith and facts. And sometimes the dreams that we have are larger than than we're able to do at this moment with God. And maybe that dream is something that he has given us for 10, 15 years down the road but he wants us to have a vision that we can move forward with now. Now, we're following Nehemiah's journey, if you will. We're looking at his life as sort of a a platform, if you will, for us to be able to move forward as we seek to find what God wants. But in this process, what we've seen from Nehemiah is that he is positioning himself To hear from God, there's a threefold platform here, if you will. The first thing is that positioning ourselves and others so that we can hear from God. That's what prayer does. That's what that building of the passion did for Nehemiah as he saw the burden, as he began to pray and develop that passion. He was positioning himself to hear from God. And then once that was accomplished, the second phase was going in God's direction. The first step is to hear from God and to be in the right place to hear from. The second step is to actually move, right? And the third step would be to experience God's best for us in the path that God wants us. And I think this is what we're going to be able to see with Nehemiah as we look at um, what he's going through. I'm just going to read real quickly. We're going to look at chapter 2, verse 5. Um, and then we're going to jump down to verse um, verse 11. But I want to read verse 5 for you to begin with. And Nehemiah has, has been praying day and night. He's told us he's getting ready to go before the king. The very king that stopped the work on the the, the gates and the, and the, and the walls of, of Jerusalem. And he says, in verse 5, he said, I said to the king, if it please the king, and if your servant has found favor before you, send me... To Judah, to the city of my father's tombs, that I may rebuild it. So we see here something is being laid out. The passion has come from that burden that God gave him, and his burden came from that idea that somebody has to do something. God was moving Nehemiah from where he was to where God wanted and needed him to be. In many places, he was bringing him into that flow, if you will, of God's excellent plan for his life, and he's showing Nehemiah how this life that he has for Nehemiah is going to impact himself, his people, the nations around them, and in many ways, even the world. A lot of us want to have this life of significance, but it really begins, as we mentioned last week, with prayer. Many years ago, in the first church I ever pastored, I preached a sermon that I labeled PUSH. And I used the acronym P-U-S-H. I don't think I invented this. I think I borrowed this from somebody else. But it simply was, means pray until something happens. So Nehemiah was using the PUSH principle. And he began praying for many days. We don't know how long Nehemiah prayed. It could have been a week. It could have been a day. It could have, well, more than one day. It could have been two days. It could have been been two months. But Nehemiah was praying daily for something. And eventually, something did happen. God moved Nehemiah, which is often the case that when we start praying fervently about a burden that he has placed on us, oftentimes God's actually preparing us to move in that direction. I don't know why it is, but God, for whatever reason, has chosen to bind himself to mankind through a covenant. You see that in the Old Testament. God doesn't need us to accomplish his will, but God uses us to accomplish his will. I don't understand the mystery. I wish I did. I don't know why God chose to use weak, cracked, and broken vessels like ourselves to accomplish his grand plan for the universe, but he has. He has chosen us to be his representatives here. He chose Nehemiah to be his guy to go back to Jerusalem and fix the walls. Just like he's choosing each one of us to do something now. You're not here this morning because you decided to get up and go to church. You think that was the reason, but that's not the reason. You're here because God brought you here. You're not in Kenai, Alaska because your job brought you here, your mother brought you here, you know, nature brought you here. You're here in Kenai, Alaska because God has planted you here. Some of us may have been here all of our life. Some of us may have just recently arrived. Some of us may have yet to see the better part of our life being spent here and we're maybe like myself new to Alaska in many ways. But no matter what, God is planting us here for a purpose, to move forward with him. And this is the plan that he has chosen to use. We are his agents of change in this community, just as Nehemiah was the agent of change for the life of those that lived in Jerusalem. I want to point your attention to verse 5, where he said, I said to the king, and this is the first thing he said, if it please the king. I underline that because I had to stop there just for a minute. I had to really examine what that meant. If it were to please the king, how many times do our prayers start off that way? Oh, Lord, if it would please you. How how often do we actually put ourselves in that position as we're prayerfully considering the next step in our life? The first thing we ask is, Lord, if it will please you. Shall we move in this direction? I can tell you that oftentimes in my life, that's not been the case. Oftentimes the factors have wa- be other things. Would it be good for my family? Would it be good for me? Is there a, some pathway that would help myself advance my career or my life or my, my passions or whatever it is that I'm interested in? It wasn't until my wife and I decided to give our path over to God that really things started happening. We were struggling in many ways because we were fighting against the will of God. We were struggling, wrestling, if you use our our, uh, our Sunday uh, Sunday school words. with We were wrestling with God, and it wasn't a pretty sight. It was not easy. I remember Sandy was in school. She was pregnant with, I think it was Rebecca, and um, she went to a Baptist um, uh, student union for a message. We were dealing with whether or not we wanted to go deeper into the ministry or whether we wanted to just sort of peter out, and because ministry is tough. And we were dealing with youth ministry, and youth ministry is even worse because you're dealing with a lot of hormones and emotions more than just the regular congregation. And um, we were really struggling with that. And there was a church we were looking at, we really wanted to be able to, to minister there. And Sandy came home, she heard a message there, and she just simply said, God has convicted me. Wherever, wherever he leads us, we'll go. And she said, I am willing to be with you and support you wherever God sends you. And that was a freeing moment for us. And I think that really was a watershed moment. That's when things started to align. and We started to move in the direction that God wanted us to. And it brought us to all the different places we've been. And it's allowed us the privilege of being able to be here in Alaska. But we had to be willing to be part of God's plan. And Nehemiah was at that point. If it would please you, the king. And then he goes on to ask the question, send me to that city. Send me where you want me to go. This is a powerful statement that Nehemiah asked. Now, if you read verses 6 through 10, you see that there is some background, some context as the king um, wants more information. But at the end of those verses, you see that the king sent Nehemiah where he needed to be. In verse 11, we pick up the story. He says, I came to Jerusalem, and I was there for three days. Small little verse, I was there for three days. I've often wondered what Nehemiah did in those three days. We're not given a clue what he did. I would imagine that after that tremendously long journey from um, uh, Babylon all the way to, or Susa all the way to um, uh, Jerusalem, that um, he probably spent some time in resting and prayerfully considering his next step in fact, um, in Mark chapter 6, verse 3, Jesus is talking to his disciples. You don't have to turn there. I'm just going to um, uh, paraphrase it. But um, Jesus is talking to his disciples, and he says, I want you to come with me. Come with me by yourselves, away from the people, into a quiet place, and to get some rest. Oftentimes, when we talk about working for God and doing the ministry, many of us are rip raring to go. A lot of us are ready to jump in the saddle. Some of us said, you know, the saddle's tiring. I've already been there. I'd like to get a break. But it's important for us to know when to take a rest. It's important for us to be able to take a step back in a quiet place and hear from God. In Psalms, we talk about being still and knowing that He is God. Jesus himself took time out of his planned ministry excursions. And I always wondered about that. Jesus was only on the earth ministering for three years. And he knew that when he left, there was nobody going to be replacing him like him. We know that he left the Holy Spirit, but Jesus himself was leaving. When you have three years to do a job and no replacement in sight, it makes that job pretty intense but yet, even within that intense moment, he still took time out of that to schedule time to be alone with just him and his Father. And that's a huge message to us, that life is not all about work, work, work. It sometimes it's about resting, praying, and seeing what God wants us to do next. And you see that with Nehemiah. And then in verse 12, he says, he arose in the middle of the night, and he took a few men with me. Uh, I took a few men with me. I did not tell anyone what my God was putting into my mind to do for Jerusalem, and there was no animal with me except the animal on which I was riding. And so I went out at night by the valley gate in the direction of the dragon's well, and on the refuge and to the refuse gate, inspecting the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down, and its gates which were consumed by fire. Then passing on to the fountain gate and to the king's pool, but there was no place for my mount to pass. And so I went up at night by the ravine and inspected the wall and then I entered the valley gate and I returned. And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I had done, nor had I as yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, and the officials or the rest who did the work. So you see, Nehemiah is on a mission. He's on a mission to do something that was going to be radically life-changing for everyone in the city, but he did it prayerfully, he did it patiently, and in many ways he did it secretly. He didn't tell anybody exactly what God was doing, but yet he had a plan to move God from where they were, move the people in God's plan from where they were to where he knew God wanted them to be. And this is the best plan to begin with. I think sometimes, we oftentimes, especially in our society, where work and and working strong and always being capable of going to work is something that is a virtue in our society. And we often talk about being a hard worker. But I want to share with you that sometimes hard work will not always guarantee success. Just being a hard worker isn't a recipe for success. It's helpful, it's part of the recipe, but it's not the only thing. As we mentioned, that prayerful consideration, as we move forward, we have to know where God is moving us. As we position ourselves to hear from God, we need to ask ourselves, where are you moving, Father? Where have you moved us in the past, and where are you moving us to? We mentioned last week or two weeks ago that, that about burdens. Our burden fuels the passion. We talked about that last week. And that passion, that passion allows us to explore and to explain the vision that God is giving us. We need to ask ourselves, based upon where we've been, where do we see ourselves moving in the future? Where do we see First Baptist Church in Kenai a year from now, two years from now? And I know a lot of you are going to say, well, Pastor, that's your job. You need to define a vision. Give us our marching orders and move forward. Well, we don't need anything clearly defined. We have the Scripture. It tells us what we need to do. We need to go to the world. We need to make disciples of all nations. We need to teach them about God, Jesus, the plan of salvation. We need to baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. We need to see his kingdom grow. But that's not a clearly defined statement. That doesn't tell us what to do on Thursday. Well, that's hard. Now, I would love to be able to stand up here and say, I've got all the answers, but we know from experience, those of us that have lived a little bit of life, that if somebody tells you what to do, is less effective as when we learn how to do it on our own. Sandy came to me the other day, and she said she wanted to learn how to put in a garbage disposal into the house, and it kind of, kind of shocked me, and I said to myself, well, why in the world would you ever want to know how to do that? I'll do it for you. But that's the silliest thing, isn't it? That's the worst response I could have given. I should have just simply said, yes, you're right. I'm a bad husband. I need to teach you how to do these things because truth of the matter, I may not always be here. She needs to know how to do these things. I taught my daughter how to change brakes and change the oil in the car before she went off in the military. She knows how to do some basic things in a car. I think it's important that we know how to do stuff. But I've taught my kids, and I think you guys have learned the same way. The best way we do it is we learn is by doing, is by getting off of our rear ends and actually accomplishing what God has called us to do. And that's where I think that hard work component is helpful. It's not the only component, but it's helpful. And that's where we are. We are praying and trusting God that he will move us in the right direction. But if we stop at the point where we just pray and trust God, where were we going to be at? I had a good friend of mine. His name was Don Metters. He was a preacher. Uh, he was served on staff on this one church we were both in. He was the singles and young adult minister. I was the youth pastor there. And Don Metters had, was a great guy. And uh, he had pastored his first church and failed miserably. Um, so much so that after it was over with, they say they basically said, "Not only are you fired, but you should never minister again." And um, and for 13 years, he agreed with him, and he stayed away. But for 13 years, God beat him up, and eventually he came back around and was back into the ministry again. He learned a lot through that, that time. And he said that when he was first out of seminary, first out of school, he was one of those people that prayed fervently and trusted that God would handle all those details. And he would talk about this in the church and his life. And he said he didn't make a lot of money as a pastor. And, and he didn't, uh, didn't, didn't know really how to, how to handle life outside of seminary because he, had already, he always had money available to him by his parents and his school loans and, and everything else. So when he was now living alone, he had a wife, he had one son, and he was trying to figure out how he does life at this point. And he was praying that God would handle it. And he, he came up with a, a, a rough situation. He had a bill come due from the electric company. And he was looking at his bank account and looking at the bill, and there was a problem. The bill was higher than the money he had in his bank account. And he knew that he wasn't going to get paid until after the bill was due, but he wanted to have good credit. He wanted to be able to be a good steward, and and so he wrote a check for the, for the, the bill, and he prayed. He prayed hard, he said. He prayed hard as he put that check in the envelope. He prayed hard as he licked the stamp and dropped the envelope in the mailbox. He prayed for the entire week until that check was sent to the electric company and came back to his bank to receive those funds. And prayerfully, he watched that check bounce. And he learned a lesson. That sometimes praying and trusting that God's going to work out all the details is not what he's asking us to do. Remember what I said at the beginning of this, is that God has elected, for whatever reason, to use man to accomplish the action of building his kingdom. He is wanting us to partner with him. He's not saying he's going to do, he's he's not asking us to do all the work, just like he's not expecting to do all the work for us. It's a partnership. We work with him to accomplish the goals that he has set out and i say this i've said this many times and i'll say it again christianity is not a spectator sport oftentimes we think it is and I, I hate to break it to a lot of us but that's the way church is set up for the last 75 or so years our church has been arranged in this spectator fashion i mean if you look at it we have a stage we have a podium and we have seats and the majority of the people are sitting watching one person work. And we think, hey, this is fantastic. Because it works at home, right? When you come home from a long day of work, we sit down in our chair, we turn our TV on, and we become entertained. We are fit well for a spectator life, but Christianity is not a spectator sport. This is how God is moving us forward. It's hard work. You see what he said. He arose at night. He took a few people with me. And I've always wondered about this phrase. He said he didn't have any animal with him except the animal he rode upon. And I wondered, he took some guys with him. They didn't get to ride. So Nehemiah was the only one that got a horse. I think that's kind of selfish of Nehemiah, but whatever. And I don't really understand the phrase. I've often wondered. I think when I get to heaven, I'll ask, I'll ask Nehemiah what he, what he was referring to here. I'm sure there's something else going on that we don't know about that we just can't. We're just too distant um, from, the, uh, the, uh, from the, the, the time there to really understand what he was meaning. But look where he went. He went out to the valley gate. He began to look at the state of where the wall was he went in the direction of, in the New American Standard, it says the dragon's well. Some of the other versions talk about the, the well of the jackal. These are words that um, uh, we don't really know exactly what the word dragon uh, means. It's translated about five or six different ways in the Old Testament. In one area in Genesis, it talks about whales. In another area, it talks about uh, dragons, sea creatures, jackals. It's just a weird word. So we don't really know where this place was, but it was near the valley gate. Then he went on to this, the refuse gate, the area where the trash was thrown out. And um, uh, he was looking at the state of Jerusalem. And he began to trace the track. And he didn't even make it all the way around the original city walls because he couldn't. The des- devastation destruction was too much. You see that in verse 14. He says, I passed by the fountain gate, and there was no place for my, my horse, my mount, to pass. Whether he was on a horse or a donkey, we don't know. But he was, there was no place for him to pass. He was stuck. He passed by the king's pool, which we mostly think that was the pool of Siloam that Jesus dealt with when he walked through Jerusalem. But we see that he got to this area, and he didn't know where to go. He couldn't go any further, and he saw that the gates were torn down. And this is the challenge that we have, because many of us sitting in this room remember the way that First Baptist Kenai used to be. And those of us that don't remember that oftentimes can look back at churches we've been to in the past. I do. All the time. I've served on some large churches and I've served in some small churches. I've seen small churches grow and I've seen large churches dwindle. And I've wondered and I've studied and I've tried to to understand sort of the, 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 the pieces of the puzzle that allow us to be able to see a church grow and not diminish. But I think one of the challenges that we have is when we, in our dreams, as we have the baggage, as I mentioned before, we oftentimes go back to those times where it used to be like. And then we hear pastors like me say these things, and then we get, well, what does that mean, pastor? We can't dream? We can't look back at the past? That's not the case at all. Nehemiah looked at the past. He walked the walls. He wanted to know where Jerusalem was. For the last four years or so, I've been looking at the walls, so to speak not the building, per se, but the walls. Each of us. We are part of the walls. We are part of the temple. We're part of this building in ways that that it's hard to explain. Some of us have been hit or miss church members over the years. I know I was for years. I remember when my parents first started going back to church. I was like 11 years old. My my father... was adamant that I had to be confirmed. I had to go back to church. I had to have the, Baptist or the, 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 the bishop put his hand on my head and say, there it is, you're now an official whatever in the Episcopal church. That was an important moment. But you didn't just do that lightly. You didn't walk into the bishop's presence without going through some classes and training. I had to prepare for it. So my family decided it was time to go back to church. And we spent several months there, a couple years and once we got all of God that we needed, I guess, we decided to go away. But that's not what God is calling us to do. Some of you guys have been faithful members from the day that they first opened the doors here, or you showed up. Whatever the path is, I think we need to move forward knowing that God has a vision for us, and he's going to bring us to a place he wants us to be. But I want to notice something on verse 14. Nehemiah says, I passed on to the fountain gate and the king's pool, but there is no place for my mount to pass. And this is something that's important. If you read on to the rest of the book of Nehemiah, you know that he did rebuild the walls. But when he did, he realized that he couldn't build rebuild the wall in the same places that it was. And the end product of the wall with the Jerusalem that was around Jerusalem that Nehemiah built was actually smaller than the original city was before. He was willing to modify and adapt his plan of seeing Jerusalem back to its former glory to make it fit with the needs on the ground. And I think that's where we are too. We need to recognize the fact that we may not see what we had 20 years ago in 1st Baptist Kenai. But I guarantee you what we are going to see is going to be amazing. If we do this prayerfully, if we position ourselves to hear from God, if we are willing to go in God's direction, if we are willing to experience his best for us. I love good speeches. I've heard some great speeches over the years. And I've heard some really cruddy ones. I don't know about you guys, but I'm a, I critique the politicians and the people when they speak in front of us. In the last several presidential elections, I have been frustrated at the level of ability of our, of our politicians. And I'd love to point my finger and say it was one party or another, but none of them are very good speakers. They all are speaking basic words, almost as though they're talking down to us. They're not actually driving us to have this inspiring dream. I remember some of the first few Speeches that I heard as a young man. Speeches that were delivered that were so powerful they recorded them and played them over and over again. The speech that John F. Kennedy gave when he said, Why we should go to the moon. Why do we go to the moon? Why do we leave where we are to go to the unknown? Why should we get behind him? Why should we? do what we asked to do when he gave that speech i don't know about you guys i didn't hear it live i heard it recorded but i got a funny tingling feeling down in my bones i wanted to jump on a rocket i wanted to walk that dusty lifeless rock we call the moon i wanted to go up there i still want to if they offered me the opportunity to be on the moon i would take it in a heartbeat I remember hearing the speech from Martin Luther King. His speech about a dream. His dream that each individual will be seen by the the merits of their abilities rather than the color of their skin. Powerful speech. And I don't care what ethnic nationality you hail from, you can't hear that speech and not be moved. I remember hearing the speech by Ronald Reagan when he stood in front of the world stage. And rather than speak to the whole world, he spoke to one man. And he told Gorbachev to tear the wall down. And he did. There are good speeches out there that will inspire us to do amazing things. but more importantly than a good speech well-written is having a trust that the individual that's speaking to you is an authentic, true believer. When I listened to JFK, I believed he wanted to go to the moon. When I listened to Martin Luther King, I believed he knew a pathway that was better than where we were. When I listened to Reagan... I wanted to pick up a sledgehammer because I believed that if I did, he would be right next to me swinging. When you listen to what Nehemiah had to say to his people, he was, he was scared to death. I could tell it. I can read that in the, in the words that he's writing. He says the officials didn't know where I'd gone. I didn't tell them. I had not told those that were going to do this work what God had put into my heart. But Nehemiah was a leader, and he moved forward. He had a path and a plan that God had placed in his heart, a plan that was going to take them where they were to where God wanted them to be. Over the next several weeks, we're going to be looking at this. We're going to be looking at where God has us now, and we're going to be working on positioning ourselves to hear from God. This is not a quick process. I would love to be able to give you one sermon, one speech to say, let's go to the moon and do it. But This isn't a quick process. Change doesn't come easy for any of us. Most of us like where we are. We like the comfortable mess we're sitting in. But God is asking us to go deeper. The Holy Spirit is reaching into our lives now. And he's asking each one of us here, where do we go from here? How are you going to be part of the puzzle? How are you going to be part of this picture that First Baptist Kenai is putting out? Where do we move from here? This is the direction that we're going. For many years, I wondered myself what God had for me. In my 20s, I was sure it was positive that God had me on a path for global domination. And then I got to really getting into it. I got my first job as a, as a manager of a restaurant. I thought, this is the step, right? I'm a, I'm a manager of a Little Caesars pizza. This is step one in my global domination bid. I knew that the next step was going to take me even better. And I knew from pizza, the world. I knew it was going to happen. But then I had these employees. Ugh. And they just couldn't see my plan. They couldn't envision global domination from a pizza parlor. And it was a struggle because all they really did was they showed up for a paycheck. They just wanted pizza and some cash. And oftentimes, they got paid more in pizza, than I think they didn't cash. And it was a challenge. And as I realized that global domination means that when you actually take over the world, you've got to run it. I don't know about you guys, but... I don't want to administer or run the world. It's too complicated. There's too many people. And then I thought to myself, as I grew up a little further, as I went a little further, that maybe this whole global domination thing is, is really too big. Maybe I ought to just focus on something small, right? And as my vision of my future distilled down to the essence, I realized that it begins in me. Right here. I still want to see the world changed. I'd still like to be part of that whole global domination concept. The idea to bring God's kingdom into a place where the entire world will have no choice but to turn to Jesus and bow and say, you are Lord. Oh, wait a minute. We are on that path. It's not about Al ruling the world. It's about Jesus ruling the world. And once I realized that it begins in me, that's when God really began to change and move me. And he began to expand that the story is not just about me, it's about him. And that's where we are this morning. That's the question we need to ask ourselves. Nehemiah was there. You see that, what he says. He says in verse 12, or sorry, um, I forget the verse now. It's not in front of me. He said he had not told them the plans that God had put in his heart. God had a plan for him. God had a plan for Israel. God had a plan for the temple and the village, or the the, the wall. He just had to move them forward into a place where they could hear what God had to say. In the next several weeks, I would like to encourage you to seek prayerfully where God is leading you to be part of the process here. Is it something grand or is it something small? those of you that are sitting here and you've never been really in church, you're not really a uh, you wouldn't label yourself religious or a Christian, you've never had a moment where you've accepted Christ as your Savior that's where it begins you know, Jesus had a plan and it was a weird plan now we know that we know that God is all-knowing and all-loving and I don't know if, I don't understand, he didn't have a beginning and I don't know where the thought came to him to create the universe I don't know if it was something he always knew he wanted to do all throughout eternity, and this was a move forward, or whether they were just sitting around one Thursday and turned to each other and said, hey, let's make the universe. But at some point or another, he created time and space as we know it. And at some point or another, he came up with this idea and plan to reconcile mankind to him. Because he knew in the process it was going to be painful, he knew in the process it was going to cause man to stumble and fall and sin and rebel against him. He knew sometime in the process he was going to have to do something physically to bring mankind back to himself. Now I realize we're probably putting way too much into this whole uh, the Holy Trinity spiritual thing, but I just sometimes I envision a boardroom. I envision the Holy Spirit, God, and Jesus sitting around with their papers as they plan out the the, the millennium to come. And I just wonder what in the world crossed their mind when Jesus said, here's the plan, okay? Mankind's going to fall, we know it, but we need to bring them back to us, and here's the plan. I'm going to divest myself somehow that I can't explain because I don't understand, and I'm going to become a baby I'm going to live a human life and I'm going to allow those crazy humans to kill me in a horrible, vicious way so that I will be a sacrifice for that sin. And then three days later, you're going to raise me from the dead, Father. And then we are going to use this as an opportunity to reconcile mankind to him, to us. That's got to be a crazy idea just thinking about it's crazy but this is what Jesus did the Bible says that before the foundation of the world the lamb was slain the Bible says that even while we were yet sinners Christ died for us the Bible says that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son and whosoever shall believe in him will not perish the Bible says that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God the Bible says that the mind and heart of man is deceptively wicked in all things. We have no ability to reach to God. He has to reach to us. He did that on the cross. He reached to you and he reached to me. And if there's anyone in here that has never embraced Jesus, has never taken that hand, has never stepped out of their sin into a glorious future that God has for them, This morning we have an opportunity to do that. In a few minutes we're going to end this message and we're going to ask our music and praise team to come up and they're going to lead us in that final song. And every week we ask you to come down front if you so desire. But the most important thing is not that you walk this aisle. And I know there are Baptists back in the 50s and 60s and 70s that would probably punch me in the nose if they heard me say that. The truth of the matter is you don't have to walk an aisle to get saved. But you do have to believe that you're a sinner. You do have to recognize that you can't save yourself. You have to be willing to accept the sacrifice Christ gave on your behalf. You have to believe that he died for us and that God rose him from the grave. And if you're willing to believe those things and you feel the Holy Spirit moving within you, then you can be saved. And I would encourage you that if you don't know Christ as your Savior, don't leave here today without speaking to me or my friend, Brother Bill in the back or any number of, uh, of men and women that are in this congregation. I guarantee you, if you turn to someone on your right or your left and ask them, how do I know, how do I find Jesus as my Savior? I guarantee you, the person may not be able to give you the answer, but they can point you to someone in this congregation that does. And we can show you what God's word says about salvation and the life he has for us. For the rest of us, we need to begin seriously praying. And I'm not talking about weenie prayers. I'm talking about powerful prayers, the kind of prayers that leaves you weeping about where God wants us to be. We need to position ourselves to hear from God. Have you heard from God this morning? Have you heard from God this week? If you have, it's time to move. If you haven't, keep praying until something happens. Let's pray. Father, we love you so much. Lord, I know that there's, statistically speaking, there's got to be at least one or two people in here that don't know you. Father, I I know almost everybody in this building, and I I like to say that they know you without a shadow of a doubt, but I can't be the one that arbitrates their salvation. Only you can. Father, if there's anyone in here that doesn't know you, I ask you to reveal yourself to them and move them in such a way that they can't leave here today without getting their heart right. For the rest of us, as we seek to know your will, as we look to follow you, as we seek to recognize that maybe what we've seen in the past isn't exactly what we're going to see in the future, as we seek your vision to move forward, I ask you to move in us. Father, I ask you to send your spirit down upon us in such a mighty and powerful way Father, I ask that you'll kindle a fire in us that will spread to our neighbors and our friends and our community. Father, I ask that as we move forward, that we will be able to lift your son up in such a mighty and powerful way that everyone in the city of Kenai, Nikiski, and Soldotna will have no doubt but to say that God is in this building and he's doing amazing things. But, Father, we don't want to be stuck in a building. We don't want four walls to define us. Father, I ask that you will move us beyond these walls, out these doors, across the ocean, if that's the case, to where you want to see your kingdom grow in a mighty and powerful way. Father, go before us this week. Help us to know you and love you. And, Father, I ask that you'll drive each one of us to our knees this week and help us to seek your face that we might find your vision. As we seek to move forward to build your kingdom. Because ultimately, Father, we recognize it's not about us, it's about you. Father, we ask these things in the name of your Son, our precious and amazing, powerful and mighty Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Brother Phil?